It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Michael O'Neill, founder and chief executive officer of GetWell Network. Following surgery and chemotherapy to treat non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Michael emerged humbled, inspired, and ready to finish the graduate studies interrupted unexpectedly by his cancer. Steering the final year of his JD MBA program from business plan to life mission, Michael founded GetWell Network to tackle an unaddressed problem in healthcare, educating, engaging, and empowering patients and their families to take control of their healthcare journeys. Two decades later, GetWell Network has given millions of patients around the world a voice in their own care, and by doing so has increased the speed of trust in the healthcare industry. Michael holds a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Notre Dame and a JD MBA from Georgetown University, and he lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland with his wife and two daughters. Michael O'Neill, welcome into the corner office. Hey, thanks, Brant. Thanks for having me today. Oh, God, great to have you here. We, we spoke about a week or so ago, and of course, the uh, the subject of the day is what we need to start with. Uh, we're recording this in the first week of June, but this probably does, isn't going to come out till sometime in August, so we'll be a couple of months out. But uh, yeah, just give us a quick update. How are you holding up during these uh, interesting COVIDian times, and importantly, your organization and, and its clients? Uh, you know, actually, I'm, I'm, uh, I stand grateful, uh, intense, uh, focused, and energized. You know, um, hey, it's a remarkable time. You know, the COVID-19 crisis, these kinds of things kind of bring, I guess, uh, an adrenaline and focus that in some ways uh, we were born for this. We've been doing our work mm. for 20 years and um, know how to do this work. And so we launched a bunch of great stuff into 200 organizations in five weeks and are touching thousands of patients on the COVID side and, and really think we can, we can really make a difference. So, um, so that part's been good. That's so cool. So you haven't had to lay anyone off. If anything, it sounds like you might've been in a hiring situation, um, with regards to, you know, kind of your activity in the network. Has that been the case? You know, it's interesting, you know, we, we've rolled out, uh, you know, over $10 million of free software across wow. uh, the U S and, um, at the same time, it's been an incredibly, uh, pressure filled business environment. So, uh, we've had to do, uh, a, a, a little bit of cutting to kind of make sure that we had, uh, the, the, the wherewithal to kind of stand through all this, um, but not a lot. And we are now rehiring very quickly. Well, that's great. Well, yeah. congratulations on that. And we want to get to uh, the Get Well Network and what you're doing a little later in the podcast. But we always like to kind of start with the early years. Michael, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your early family life was like. So I grew up in New York in a small town called Newburgh and Poughkeepsie, New York in the Hudson Valley. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, really 
uh, quite simply, uh, just some of the greatest people on earth who taught me mm. everything I know about family, about loyalty, about integrity, and uh, always cherish time to kind of go back. Um, I was the middle of five children spread oh over yes, <laughs> spread over seven years. So it was kind of like a, a pack of wolves, you know. So, um, <laughs> so, so three kind of pretty simple uh, lessons, kind of team team over self. Um, my dad preached uh, six hugs a day in our house, which I know sounds over the top, um, but until COVID was probably practicing that one uh, with, a, with a religion that some felt odd, but it was phenomenal. Um, and then really kind of you can do anything you set your mind to. So it was really a pretty remarkable childhood. Um, four boys and a little girl. My, all my brothers grew up in one, one bedroom with two bunk beds. It was uh, wow. kind of hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. And what did dad do? What was his work? So both mom and dad were entrepreneurs. Dad was a uh, management consultant, former dean of students at a college oh. um, that brought us to Newburgh and then um, really taught uh, team building, problem solving, communication skills during the whole um, total quality management movement of the 80s. Oh, right. TQM. Sure. Yeah. I remember that was exposed to that Procter and Gamble years and years ago. And, and mom uh, supported him in that or was, did she have other entrepreneurs? No. So mom actually uh, owned and ran uh, three special needs uh, preschools um, in throughout uh, Newburgh and, uh, and Orange County and Goshen County in Goshen. And um and so, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, kind of around them, of course, being involved in the business, everything from painting classrooms to mowing lawns to building binders for dad's workshops. <laughs> so it was uh, a big part of our, our youth. That's great. Terrific. And you were the middle of five. Any, um, you know, kind of inspirational folks around you, uncles, aunts, teachers, coaches, you know, what were some of the things that uh, you remember from your youth in that regard? You know, I have to say, you know, my, I think my my family because the family was so big, we were kind of the central gathering place for lots of kids and people and coaches uh, in the area. You know, um, my brothers and sisters uh, are just ballers. They're ballers in life, in school and in sports. I got the oldest and the youngest were both division one athletes. The second oldest one was the last one cut on the famous Villanova basketball teams back in the late eighties. Oh um, I was the worst, you know, uh, athlete, but still, still, still played a lot and really just learned um, really so much in them. They are my best friends, my, my mentors and my role models. That's great. Were you a good student in school? Uh, you know, so I got good grades. Uh, and I think there's a distinction between uh, getting good grades and being a good student. So I, I have a couple of daughters who are teenagers now. My older one is 16. And to watch her go to work with the planning, depth, drafts, output, diligence. She's a good student. I got good grades. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but, uh, you know, the education needs to change. It's a whole other podcast, but I think um, there's a whole new way to do education. And uh, it's great to see the young, young folks digging into it. Well, we're certainly experiencing a different uh, type of education during, uh, you know, these uh, pandemic times. Are, are both your kids at home doing online learning now? Uh, they are, you know, uh, th they're blessed. They're, they're in a brand new school here in D.C. That's an international mm. school. And so they've got a sister school in Shenzhen, China. So they really were about oh, wow. eight, eight weeks ahead, um, as you can imagine, uh, you know, on this distance learning. And so it's been a pretty remarkable time uh, to watch them engage differently. And uh, it's been really interesting to kind of be a part of that. Yeah. You mentioned mom and dad were both entrepreneurs. Any specific lessons from them growing up, either in the business world or, you know, as part of kind of your, uh, you know, your growing up uh, credentials, so to speak? You, you know, I, I really think that, you know, what, what we kind of saw with them is they, they truly outworked everyone. Mm. Um, but at the same time, uh, we were always center, you know, and I actually think that uh, their ability to kind of 
turn it on uh, so hot uh, when they were working and then frankly equally hot when they were with us mm-hmm. was a really powerful formula That's that a hard thing to do it is you know yeah. it is and it's almost like this notion of hey when you when when you get up in the morning you race as fast as you can uh, to work to have the biggest impact you possibly can and then you race as fast as you can home. <laughs> to kind of have that uh, incredibly unique time. And my mom and dad taught me that um, not about balance, it's about embracing the imbalance, you know, and to just get after it um, because time is just so precious. Did they did they balance their energy between both or did they give an equal amount of uh, that level of energy to both their home life as well as their, as their work? Well, you know, so my, my dad's an O'Neill and my mom's an Esposito. So we had this pretty stereotypical. We, we, we ran hot, high emotion, a lot, a lot, a lot of laughs, a lot of tears. Um, but uh, it was just a great um, there was never a shortage of energy. And so um, I, I don't have a shortage of it either. It's been a real blessing. Well, with mom and dad being an entrepreneur, I'm sure you pursued some entrepreneurial things as a kid. What tell us about those? You know, it, it it's funny. Uh, I I surrounded myself early on, like the the jobs I would take early on were really with other entrepreneurs. So a guy started a car wash right next door to my high school, and so it allowed me to kind of get in three hours of work between the end of the school day and the beginning of basketball practice. Um, then I grabbed on to a guy uh, during summers who actually was painting houses, um, hot houses houses in the summer. It was hot and terrible and dangerous ladder tricks that you and I can uh, laugh about over a cold beer one day. Um, But I kind of just surrounded myself, you know, with entrepreneurs um, just because there was something that attracted me to scrap, you know, like figuring out what you are good at and really kind of getting after it every day was something that was just really an attraction, like a magnet. Was college always a goal for you or something that mom and dad supported? And did some of that cash get set aside for that? Or, or did you have other vices as a high school? You know, <laughs> it, you know, you know, it, it really did. You know, what ended up happening was our deal was um, mom and dad will pay for college. Uh, we pay for everything that isn't um, books and <laughs> and sleeping, right. and and right. and then and then we're on a on a hook for grad school. When we want to go, and so but but there really was um, there was just a real value. Uh, place. You know, my dad was a PhD in psychology. Uh, my mom had a master's and she would actually end up getting her PhD at 65. So there's a real value placed in education. And it really is something that, that all of us uh, chased after as, as an investment ourselves. And what led you to the University of Notre Dame grade school? Yeah, thank you. You know, um, hey, it's, it's one of those places when you grow up in kind of the family environment uh, that I did, there's a certain kind of value set um, mm. and, and not so much uh, religious, but absolutely kind of spiritual and really kind of racing towards uh, folks that actually um, feel community, you know, and how important community is in people's lives. So I think that was the biggest draw um, aside from the miracle uh, to kind of get accepted and have an invitation to go be a part of it all. Yeah, that's awesome. And you studied American government, political uh, and politics, right, if I'm not mistaken. And and kind of the, the choice of going down that road. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, you know, I think um, my, my dad was an idealist. You know, he would uh, talk all the time, even in his uh, TQM world, about the fact that he was he was changing the world. And he would ask us all the time, you know, about um, exploring enough things to kind of find where we're going to kind of put our imprint on the world. And so I guess you know, uh, going to study government, maybe I was trying to figure out uh, on my way out not to have a job. I don't know what the, what the objective was, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, uh, but it really was, I think like kind of getting after like how, um, and be taught how to think, how to form arguments, how to see things from all sides, how to take a position. Um, and really like, I just love being around people who care 
Um, and when you study things like government um, and liberal arts, it, it just people really care, you know, and and that was a big part of my youth and, and really has served me well. Did you consider going into government at some point in time during those four years there? Uh, you know, um, I, I did. I picked up a, a minor in, in, in peace studies and um, did kind of a senior thesis on uh, at the time on gang violence in L.A. and, and, mm-hmm. and really uh, thought about doing something kind of on the policy side, you know, uh, in, in and around uh, criminal justice and, and then just end up taking a different path. But, yeah. Right. Right. And, and worked your way during college as well, um, either while you were going to school or when you came back over the summers? I, I, I did, uh, both of them. So at school uh, at, at Notre Dame, you live in these uh, dorms for a large part of your time there. And so um, I, we, we, all of us had little pizza shops down in the basements. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we'd worked uh, there, uh, of course, gave a lot of free pizzas away to our friends, um, <laughs> but, uh, but did that. And of course, in the summers, came back and, and again, did a lot of things that were really just um, as much physical as anything else, um, just letting my brain uh, take a little bit of a break, uh, making sure I was learning how to show up for work every day um, and, and work hard. And, and so uh, I was very, very grateful for that. And it looks like you went into advertising right out of college. Was was Deutsch your first job? So Deutsch was my second job. My first job was a little shop called Griffin Bacall. Uh, right oh, in, oh, goodness. I know Griffin Bacall. Is that right? Yeah, I used to work with him. I was on the brand side with Procter & Gamble early on. Uh, you're kidding. They specialized in kids advertising. Yes, yes. So my wow. first account was Play School Toys. I worked sure. for – I kind of hit the lottery on mentors. I worked for three women, um, a three-woman team uh, who was led by uh, Jill Baldoff. And I actually answered their phones and wrote – their memos and faxed their 30-page documents. And she literally taught me um, what it took to actually be a professional. Um, and so, in fact, I saw her last year for the first time in about a decade and, wow. and the reunion was so cherished. So yeah, I, so anyway, so I started at Griffin Bacall and then moved over and worked for Donnie Deutsch, who was truly the best entrepreneur I've ever been around. Yeah, um, yeah great, great to learn from him. Well, I you know, got to know uh, both Tom and Joe Bacall very well. Sure. Griffin Joe Bacall very well, worked with them. We had a kid's product uh, that was in the, in the juice area and uh, worked with a, a gentleman by the name of Bob Horn. Was Bob there? Yes. Yes, he was. That's so funny. Great folks. Those were some of my best years as a brand manager. Just such great people. And really kind of um, actually like without me knowing I was learning it, formed a culture that was incredibly success driven, but so based on values, you know, um, and values of being together and working on behalf of our clients and each other. And uh, yeah, they're just terrific. Yeah, terrific. Well, and, and, you know, not, I guess, too soon after uh, you went to Deutsch, um, you had some health problems. We talked about that a little bit in the bio. Tell us about when that developed and, you know, kind of how that steered your, your life from that point forward. Yeah, so kind of a crazy experience. So I left advertising after five or six years to go to graduate school down at Georgetown University in DC. And I went to go study a, a JD MBA. And really the thought was um, to just go get training so I could come back and either own or run an ad agency. I love the ad business, but I really just needed to learn more. You know, I could read a media plan and a strategy plan, but I really didn't know what a profit and loss statement was, didn't understand financing. And, and so really wanted to just go um, get smarter so I could come back and actually lead some things at a bigger level. Anyway, uh, three years into my four-year graduate program, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and, um, you know, uh, those of us who are uh, members of the cancer club, it's one of these things that freezes you, you know, in time. And, and so 24 years old, I was actually 28. 
So I was 28 years old, uh, ended up going through surgery to cut about half my stomach out, spent a couple of weeks as an inpatient, and then five cycles of CHOP chemotherapy through the summer of 1999, and then returned to grad school with a bald head and about 10 pounds lighter and, <laughs> and uh, a lot of fire uh, in my belly to make uh, the healthcare experience uh, different. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so literally took a break then in between, or did you just literally do that over the summer and, and didn't miss a beat, came right back and finished your degree? Yeah. You know, when, whenever you, uh, you have cancer, it's so interesting. You, you find uh, gratitude for little things. So I guess one thing I was grateful for is I got sick in the spring right before finals. So, uh, so I did chemo through the summer and I was kind of ready to go <laughs> as I was uh, coming back in the fall. So um, anyway, so we try to find uh, little blessings and then just get after it for however much time we have. Have left. That's terrific. Well, goodness gracious. And and I really want to hear more about, uh, obviously, the Get Well Network and your inspiration around it. Did it become a uh, an MBA project? Was that kind of part of the founding of the company? Tell us a little bit about how you came across the idea. You know, it did. And, and uh, since then, I've been an adjunct professor at Georgetown and ah. speak down at their classes a lot. And I tell them all the time when I talk to uh, uh, Dean Almeida, who's the dean now, the business school. I said, listen, uh, whenever you need something, uh, anytime, anything, you call. And if I'm in town, uh, I'm in. Because my last year in grad school, uh, as I did return, I cannot tell you the flexibility, the encouragement that every single professor gave me to kind of take all my electives and to build this business plan through the lens of a legal planning um, class, do a finance class, do a research class, do a quantitative statistics class. And so I really took, you know, that last year to really build out um, a business plan that ended up becoming very well thought out because of all their help. What was the, um, you know, the the kind of the inspiration moment? Um, you know, what did you see lacking in the healthcare system? And, you know, what was kind of that aha that said, wow, this is my mission? So this will really sound uh, kind of blunt, but I was uh, laying in a hospital bed at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore for 11 days. And I was staring at this 25-year-old television on the wall. And every morning, this young kid would come in and ask me for $8 to kind of turn the TV on. And as he would turn it on with this metal key, I'd be flipping up around the channels. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I just came from a world where at my fingertips, I have access to all of the information the people, the data that I need to make very good decisions about really important and complicated things. And now here I am thrust into the healthcare world as a cancer patient. And I feel like I don't have access to anything. You know, um, people were busy. The technology, while clearly amazing on the medical side, was non-existent, you know, from a, from a patient standpoint. And, and, and I sat there staring at daytime soap operas. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what is going on? So, so, so literally the, the concept of Get Well Network um, literally came from my law school roommate came to visit me. I'll never forget it. And I had drawn on a napkin on my bed tray, hey, I'm actually going to convert this television into a desktop. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make it into a computer. I'm going to hook it up to my clinical chart so that I actually, as a patient, can follow along with my medications, with my procedures, with the questions I have. And so that really was the genesis, you know, of Get Well Network. That's awesome. And that was about 20 years ago. And it today, was. tell us a little bit about the company. How big are you? And, you know, describe your mission to us. Yeah. So today, the, the mission is really straightforward. Uh, we are, we exist to help when, when healthcare is front and center in someone's life and Get Well Network is there to help you take an active role in your health journey, you know, and we fundamentally believe, and now we have measured 
that a more active, educated, involved patient is a better patient and the outcomes get better if we can do that, you know? So, so today um, we are touching about 12 million people, uh, patients and families a year with our software. We are working in over 600 organizations across the United States, in the Middle East, Australia, a little bit in Ireland and Canada. Mm. Um, and we are working alongside of healthcare providers to help them implement strategies and technologies and change management to really put patients and families in the center of the care process. Mm -hmm. And we are measuring like crazy the impact that that has on service quality and cost. So just really providing them better information so they can track where they are, but also be better educated about the care they're getting. Is that a good summary? It really is. You know, it's funny when, when, you, when you get thrust into healthcare, oftentimes as a patient, um, it's a whole new set of acronyms oh, and things you don't understand. You can't even read the bill. And, you know, there's just a lot. It's, it's not very seamless as we like things to be in this day and age. So we're helping to kind of really digitize and take the seams, you know, out of the patient experience. Mm. That's awesome. And how many employees today? Uh, we have about 350 employees. Wow. And are they all in the Bethesda area or are you uh, lo located all over the world? They're not. Yes, we are. So about 100 of us uh, are in and around Bethesda. And then uh, really two thirds of the staff are everything from nurses to technologists to, um, you know, client service folks and what have you are really kind of uh, all over the place working and walking the halls of our clinics and hospitals every day. Yeah, that's awesome. So so kind of reflecting back to some of those early advertising years and now, of course, 20 years with Get Well, what, what would you say are kind of some of the early inspirations or things that you might have learned, you know, in that in that advertising world that you're now applying today? You know, I, I think one of the probably the most important thing um, that I learned in advertising was focus. You know, we would go through a process to help organizations identify, you know, a brand's essence, right? Both the rational side and the emotional side of the brand. And we would actually have to do the research um, both on the consumer side and on the kind of business side to figure out ultimately, how do you go from actually describing your company in a paragraph to actually articulating this in a phrase, you know, where it really captures, frankly, uh, hearts and minds of the stakeholders that you're actually needing to influence. You know, so I think the fundamental thing I learned, you know, uh, in advertising was that, was that gift to really kind of get underneath, you know, and really understand from a multiple stakeholder standpoint, how you can articulate uh, what you're trying to do to kind of to, then to go change behavior, you know, and that really, that's the, what we're trying to do in healthcare. Well, that, and, and it just sounds like, you know, what you've established is really a very, very important communication vehicle uh, to those of us who may or may not, you know, who are unfortunate, of course, to be thrust into a situation and may or may not understand, you know, all of the rules. And as you said, the acronyms I've, you know, have unfortunately had a couple of hospitalizations and it does really feel like a different world. You know, you, you feel like an infant in many ways because you don't understand what's going on. So you've, you've really proven to be a better communicator, right? Is that kind of part of it as well? It, it, of it truly is, you know, and, and that communication, as you know, in healthcare, it's so critical that it is uh, bi-directional. You know, and oftentimes multimodal, you know, like a, a certain patient may need to really see things on a text message and others may need you to look them in the eye, you know, and explain it three times. And so our ability to understand a person's capacity to engage in their care really helps us then guide the providers on how to intervene with them most effectively. And ultimately, to your point, it's communication. How can we actually just really transform the communication protocols and technologies, you know, um, uh, in, in healthcare? 
Who are some of the first people you hired when you got going with, with uh, Get Well Met? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, 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 when I talk to these classes all the time at, at Georgetown now and down at UVA at times, you know, I tell them all the time, hey, um, you probably spend your time in your dorm rooms uh, and out at night with people who are really like you. Uh, those are probably who your friends are. I will tell you when you start a business, hire people that aren't like you, you know, because <laughs> there simply aren't enough talent and human resources to, to get all the work done. And so for me, I purposely, like I knew I was a marketing guy. I understood brands. I knew I could actually sell. I had no idea about technology. I had no idea about operations. <laughs> I had no idea. And, and so the, my first three hires were literally, we had me on sales. We had an operations guy named Gino, who I knew from growing up. We had a technologist named Jeff and a software engineer named Robin. And those were the friend, those were kind of the four hires, you know? So, um, and, uh, it, it was, it was a blessing to understand, uh, how much had to get done and to not have overlapping skill sets because it just is too much to get done. Right. Now, was that the first time you started managing people or did you actually have people responsibility back at Deutsch? Yeah. So when it came to teams, you know, um, I began to be a manager when I was at uh, Deutsch Advertising and that part came naturally to me, you know, growing up, uh, being a part of a big family, uh, always being captains of teams and uh, leaders of kind of school groups and those kind of things. Uh, while the mistakes that I've made uh, leading my company are countless, uh, that, that, that part thankfully came, came quite, quite naturally. You know, I've recently heard it said that some CEOs are uncomfortable, you know, having their answers questioned rather than their questions answered. Um, how do you kind of deal with that when you've got pretty smart people in the room? I guess this one's pretty easy. We we purposely recruit for a couple of key things at the leadership level. And one of them, believe it or not, is ego. Um, so we, we need strong voice, uh, patient and family engagement work and technology and software development work, it's a team, it's the ultimate team sport. And so unless we actually recruit for leaders at around the table, quite honestly, have um, diverse experience matched with a decent size ego, you know, uh, we don't get to the right answer, you know? And so uh, our whole thing is really built, you know, on a couple of kind of core um, kind of culture and kind of value rules that we stand by and, and, and it really kind of works well for us. That's awesome. Cool. And if you look back at kind of your leadership style over the last 20 years, how would you say it's evolved? Uh, you know, significantly, to be honest with you, when we first started the company, I would tell you that um, the way I led and the way the company um, evolved early on was very uh, personality based, you know, and it was based on my personal experience and, you know, um, my instincts on the product. And, and, and over time, what I realized, and I had a great executive coach um, about five years into building Get mm -hmm. Well Network, and he really pushed me to really kind of begin to understand, hey, um, moving from a personality based to a commitment based organization will really allow for the scale that you that you say you actually want to have, and so we really began to talk very openly about uh, who the stakeholders are, what are our commitments, and make sure we filter all of our key decisions through these commitments, and it's really served us quite powerfully. That's great. That's great. So literally holding that um, that style up against the core values in many ways, right? In terms of how you established how you want to do business. Uh, no, no, no doubt. You know, it's funny. It, it, we're not there anymore because the offices are all closed. But uh, but you know, the the values. People ask about culture all the time, and we don't really focus on culture. We focus on from a leadership standpoint. To, in my mind, the leadership needs to set 
and withstand and hold up values and then let, and then let the teammates drive culture, you know? And so for us, um, there are values, there are paint on our walls and they're simple. And it's three of them. Number one, root for each other. Number two, share openly. And number three, be world-class every day. And if we actually uphold these as values and then let the team kind of build culture, um, it really has served us uh, quite well. How do you decide if it's time to micromanage someone or, or stay out of their sandbox? You know, I, I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty open about the way that I um, that I know uh, works best for me and gets the best outcome and gets best for the company. And that is, um, I guess, two things. One, I'm kind of involved on the on the bookends. One, upstream and vision. So when we're when we're ideating, when we're kind of creating, um, I often like to be in that mix just to hear what others are, are actually thinking and saying, kind of what overall direction we're going. And then I love to be um, really involved at the end and just put a finishing touch that I think might be a real helpful push, you know, at the end. And then really let folks operate with a lot of freedom, you know, um, in the middle kind of 80 to 85%. Um, and we usually just plan for one touch point, you know, on a midstream. And then we just let them fly. When you are the right people, this is so cliche, but – when you let them fly, amazing things happen. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm sure you're involved in a lot of interviewing, um, particularly for your direct reports and maybe, you know, sometimes kind of down the down the, the food chain, so to speak. But, you know, there's an, an important hire. Maybe it's someone two or three levels below you in the organization. And, you know, you've been asked to maybe just spend five or ten minutes with them. What do you focus in on when you have that time? I always ask them just three questions and oftentimes a couple of levels down, just say sometimes I only have, you know, 15 minutes with right. them. And so the first is just what gives you energy and why? Mm. Um, I just love to know what drives people. And I don't care if they answer something personally or professionally. I just want to understand where their soul is. Mm. Um, the second thing is what depletes your energy and why? Um, because I want to make sure I understand um, the kind of environment you want to put this person in to make sure that we're doing energy inducing things with them and not energy depleting. And the third thing really is if you can have an enduring impact on one specific thing in the world, uh, what would that be? Mm. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm learning from my kids, you know, uh, if if we can uh, remove some of the barriers and allow them to pursue um, um, passions earlier, uh, frankly, in life and even in the workplace, it is like literally mind blowing what what the productivity of people, you know. Um, and so th that's really what my interest is. I certainly trust, uh, of course, my team and the managers. Hey, do they have the right marketing skills or the right engineering skills? Um, that's stuff that I have 100 percent confidence our, our crew is going to figure out. I love to understand what drives people. Yeah, that's cool. If if I was to ask someone that's been with you for a while, you know, maybe not from the beginning, but in the last five or 10 years, you know, what's unusual or unique about their your culture? What would you think they'd say? Um, I actually think that uh, that they would say that um, what's unique is that we really kind of practice this notion of the speed of trust. When trust is high, um, speed is fast and costs are low, quite honestly. And when trust is low, um, things slow down and costs get high. And so the, if, if we stick to these values I mentioned earlier, it really, what, what, what I'm really trying to do is build an environment of trust, you know, uh, among us all, because in our world, you know, uh, it's so complicated. It's so competitive. 
our customers are under so much stress and pressure business-wise and our patients are under so much stress from a life standpoint that we need to move really fast to make sure that we're actually providing them with software and services that can support them. And we can only do that if we can really adapt to how rapidly changing this. And in fact, COVID is a great example of this. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're kind of coasting along with like our 2020 roadmap, you know, in our budget and all of a sudden the world changes. And so the question really is, is if we didn't have um, speed of trust, we could never in literally in 10 days uh, produce a software package to roll out to 200 organizations in six weeks and impact 90,000 90, people. There's no way, you know, so like that, I think would be the most unusual thing that they would talk about um, is how much we rely on that speed of trust. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, you mentioned COVID and, you know, there's lots of speculation about the, what the world's going to look like and specifically work environments in a, in a kind of post-COVID world. And, and maybe we'll be in and out of it for a while. You know, a lot of speculation about this coming back again in the fall. But if you kind of look in your crystal ball and looked at your industry and your company, what, what changes do you see ahead? So I guess I think about this on uh, two levels. I guess on the, on the personal level, um, there, I, I have to admit, I have a sadness to me and it really pertains to social stuff. You know, I think that, um, uh, again, look, I grew up in a big family. Uh, I've got a group of 25 friends at Notre Dame that we call the family, you know, this is six so, times a day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so, so, you know, so, so socially there's a, there's a sadness and an anxiety around how do we find our way back towards what I have found to be an incredibly important um, part of my life and energy source. And that is getting it from others and their yeah, connectedness. Well, the, the physical end. Physical. Yes, exactly. Hands, giving a hug. Yeah. Know, playing on teams. Exactly. So like that part's yeah. a little bit sad and I'm, I have some anxiety about how that kind of fell out on the business side. I got to tell you, like I, I'm incredibly um, energized. And the two things that come to mind are efficiency and technology acceleration. Yeah. You know, in, in, in my business in healthcare, um, there is every complexity in the world put up and wall put up to kind of move forward on innovation rapidly. And what COVID has done has stripped all of the BS out of the way and made room for like, hey, how the heck are we going to actually care for these incredibly sick people who are very afraid and we're afraid to actually touch them? You know, and so it, it has removed so many barriers so rapidly that it gives me great hope, you know, in our ability to be responsive in the future. Yeah, no, that's terrific. And I've already seen it happen in my business. I kind of thought I would go into an area where people wouldn't hire. And yet, of course, we're agnostic in terms of our industry. So we're doing food production and healthcare and everything else. But, you know, it's amazing how people now are saying, well, you know, I guess we can let people work from home. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's okay now, you know, we're saying like, there was always this trust level before. Oh, I know. And, uh, you know, the level of productivity is already documented well before COVID. And, you know, people can walk five minutes to their place of work versus driving 45 minutes. Uh, you know, what a difference that's going to make. I, I feel sorry for the commercial real estate people, though, because they're going to be hit hard. Hey. Look, there's some fundamental uh, shifts that will absolutely, you know, hurt some industries. But but listen, I just, just something you said, it struck me, you know, I think it goes back to this notion of speed of trust, you know, it's like right. you know, the, 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 the speed with which our, our organization was blessed to be able to pivot is really based on the things that you've done culturally and values wise the last 10 years. You know, if you hadn't done them, it just takes longer, you know, um, so it's a really uh, interesting time for sure. Yeah. Another thing I've heard is that there will be companies operating three to five years from now that will be household names. 
yep. that we don't even know of yet. Maybe not even founded yet. Uh, maybe one of them will be get well networked. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just going to be we're going to be doing things so much differently moving forward. And uh, you know, in many ways, uh, that should add to our productivity and our effectiveness, uh, despite, of course, some of the social downsides. But hopefully, there'll be ways we can get over that too. We'll we'll, we'll see what comes next. Uh, I, I think that's right. And I got to tell you, I'm sure you're feeling the same thing. Just the the unexpected. Um, requirement to be still. Yeah. Um, I, I have never felt so focused and productive in I, in my career. You know, since right. like the early right. days, and I actually believe it's because of some of this forced stillness. I'm not right. spending 20 hours a week in racing for a plane and being right. in a you know crowded you know air, air, <laughs> uh, you know airplane. And and I gotta tell you, uh, the stillness has just really allowed me to uh, focus. Uh, and be clear, you know, and be and be more creative, you know. So it's been really, really powerful. Michael, you've been very generous with your time, but we always have one last question we ask all our CEO guests. And, and that's kind of what career and life advice would give to someone who maybe has their eyes in the corner office and their employer, or perhaps wants to be an entrepreneur like you and, and found their own company someday. Well, so I have to say, so I, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up uh, with a psychologist as a dad who gave lots of advice. So because of that, I don't take advice very well, uh, nor do I give any. However, I'm, I'm a huge believer in shared experience. So I would love just to share, you know, um, what has worked for me. Um, and so I guess it's three, really three things. The first is nothing trumps purpose-driven work. You know, it literally when, when, when you would rather succeed in your work than do anything else, it is a terrific driver of survivor of success. So to me, purpose-driven work has really mental, you know, um, asset that I have leaned on um, to really drive what I've driven for the last 20 years. The first thing. The second thing is um, values trump culture. If we actually, um, but, but there's no compromise, you know, like when, when you are kind of values driven, uh, there's simply no compromise. And that means sometimes when someone violates those values, you actually have to fire them, you know, and that's hard, you know, um, second thing. And the third thing is, is I have learned that when I um, check my, um, my list and my time against making sure I'm equally putting my efforts into corporate development and strategy, client development and customers and culture development and people, when I actually make sure I'm balancing out, you know, that my time in those three areas is when we're, I'm really doing well and we're doing well. And when one of them kind of outstrips the other for a four week period um, and I don't balance it out, we really kind of suffer from that, you know? So those are just be three things that certainly have, have worked for me. Well, that's awesome, Michael. Michael O'Neill, president, founder, and CEO of GetWell Network. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Hey, thank you for having me. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.